You've got some notes there on your table. Um, there's a few more back there at the back. Um, this one, uh, our study for today, the, the reading is called Mishpatim, uh, which means the rules or the judgments or ordinances. Um, and um, I do have those uh, notes there for you. There's probably some on the tables even from the last week or two. Uh, please feel free to take those. You can even put them uh, in a book if you'd like. Um, anyhow, and I would strongly suggest you obviously you know, take some notes. Uh, and before we do anything else, just want to remind everybody that in three weeks, um, on March the 3rd, is when we'll move our services from Sunday mornings to Saturday evenings at 5.30. So uh, that'll happen in just uh, basically, I think it's three weeks, uh, two or three weeks. Anyways, <clears throat> so looking forward to that and... Um, uh, I think I think it's gonna be fun. Anyhow, so if you have your Bibles or you just want to use the notes there, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, we're gonna uh, march through this uh, section of Scripture, and once again, we're gonna find some uh, very interesting, compelling uh, parallels in Scripture, and hopefully, this will uh, the study today will help answer some questions uh, because as soon as um, you start trying to tell people. Well, we believe that the Old Testament still applies to our lives. There's a few questions that automatically pop up. Oh, so you believe in slavery. Oh, so you're going to, you believe it's okay to stone your kids. And it comes with all these crazy uh, comments. And I want to show you um, what God actually said, okay? Did you know that... Um, and before we get into it, you, you should know, uh, because of American history, world history, especially dealing with slavery, um, that verses in the Old Testament were used to verify uh, the legitimacy of owning slaves and the slave trade uh, even here in America. Did you all realize that, that people did that and Christians we're told and taught, you know, well, God said it's okay. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, God gave guidelines for what you're supposed to do when you own slaves, so it's okay if you own slaves. Well, once again, that comes from a distorted, twisted understanding of God's Word. And watch this, taking it out of context. That'll get you in hot water faster than anything else. And you're going to see it clearly here because that's what we're going to do. We're going to read the Bible in context, right? We're going to learn how to, how to read it ourselves so we can stay in our lane and not cause a, a, a catastrophic wreck. So let's just to start off here in verse, in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Now these are the rules, meaning the mishpatim, um, that, or that's the Hebrew word for it, and that's what this section is called. And it says that you shall set before them, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. In the seventh year, he shall go free for nothing. So here you see where he even says, okay, so when you uh, buy a Hebrew slave. Uh, and so you might immediately start thinking, well, what in the world does that mean? So it does God really allow for slavery? Well, I just mentioned 
something in our history. In other words, when I use the word slavery, probably most of us in the room, we have a mental picture that pops up of African-Americans uh, that were captured in Africa like animals shipped across the world. They're over here and they're being kept as property, um, some beaten mercifully, merc- you know, mercilessly and, and um, uh, abused and just all kinds of atrocities. Is that probably the picture that comes to your mind when you think of slavery? Well, for God, uh, when he lays this out, it was his equivalent, the way it was to be done properly, of what we today think of as bankruptcy court. Uh, this was an idea that if you found yourself in dire straits, you'd borrowed money or whatever, and then you couldn't repay the money, uh, and whoever you were indebted to had the right to regain their income that they lost. At the same time, you were not supposed to lose your home. So uh, the idea was if that were to happen and there was no way for you to pay your money back, pay, pay back your debt, then you had to work off your debt. You let, and if it was severe enough, you would leave your home, you would live with your now owner, and you would serve him no longer than six years. In the seventh year, you'd be set free. You could go back to your home. And that was a way for you to pay back your debt. You you see what I'm saying? And what that also meant was it held everybody accountable. So whoever's loaning you money or whatever, they're going to be calculating. Well, if this goes default, best I'm going to get is six years. We just came out of what? One of the worst economic disasters in a long time when, when the economy crumbled in 2008, and why did that happen? Bad lending practices. It was a bubble, and it had to pop, and it did, and people got caught shorthanded. Um, this was God's answer, really, to keep that kind of stuff from even happening. So I want you to see something where God never, ever said it was okay to go capture somebody and sell them as property. I want you to see what he says here in this same chapter. In verse 16, he says, Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So he's saying like the stuff that we know from our history and world history. It wasn't just America, by the way. It was everywhere. Uh, But the idea of going and capturing and stealing a person and selling them as property brought the death penalty, according to God. Even if you bought him, if you bought a stolen person, to God, that's an abomination worthy of capital punishment. He never said that was okay. Now, I want to show you that in in this reading so that you can see how this correlated even with the people of Israel because they failed at it. We are, we still haven't learned. (laughs) We are obstinate, stubborn, rebellious people. Mankind just can't figure this out. So in Jeremiah chapter 34, this is a lengthy passage here, but I want you to see 
God's view on this. And once again, something incredibly important. So I'm just going to read through this whole thing and then try to explain what was going on. It says, thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying, at the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my, called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name. I don't know if I highlighted that in your notes or not, but you need to highlight that. It says, uh, but then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to, you, liberty to the sword, to the pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror uh, to all the kingdoms of the earth and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, <clears throat> I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command, declares the Lord, and bring them back to this city, and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without an inhabitant. That's, and he, you can, can you tell? God's mad. Why is he mad? Number one, they broke his commands to start with. <clears throat> and then he says, you went back on what you promised me, and you profaned my name. That's huge, people. I'm going to keep bringing this up because we're going to continue to see it. This is this major key that's going to unlock the Scriptures for you. He said, you profaned my name when you did this. You're supposed to be my people. You're supposed to be living by my rules. Not only have you gone against them, but you claim to be mine. You make all these promises. Then when you went back, you made my name just as common as all the fallen deity gods. All these other pagan gods. That's what it means to profane his name. Now, so what was going on? Just so that I can help you catch up a little bit. <clears throat> We're dealing with the Babylonian captivity. King Nebuchadnezzar has already come, captured the city once. When he dragged off uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all them and everything, he comes back <clears throat> against it again because he had placed his... He had placed a king over Judah uh, and changed his name to Zedekiah. 
Zedekiah rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> doesn't want to pay his taxes, if you will. Um, and so he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar comes and lays siege to Jerusalem. They're trying to figure out how to get out of this deal, and they realize, oh, we've been going against God's rules, and we've been enslaving fellow Hebrews and not setting them free according to God's rules. You see, once you own something and you see a financial benefit, it's kind of hard to let that go. Even when that benefit is enslaving somebody else. When you got a good thing going and you think it's legal and everybody's okay with it, right? Because we're just stubborn, self-centered people. Even to this day, we're like that. Um, so what happened was <clears throat> they repented and they, they realized, oh, we're wrong. We shouldn't do this. God, we need your deliverance. What they're having is a jailhouse conversion. And so they make a pact with God. They make a covenant and they literally take a cow, a calf, which is part of some of the ritual or whatever, if you will, of cutting. a. That's why it says you cut a covenant. And they cut the animal in half, put the two halves on either side, and they walk between it. Literally saying, if I break this covenant, let that happen to me. Um, and they did this before God. But you know what else they did? Kind of hedged their bets a little bit. Zedekiah also pleaded with Egypt to come and help them. So they make this plea. God uses Egypt because Egypt starts to come, gets Nebuchadnezzar's attention. He doesn't have really the resources to sustain this and fight Egypt if they show up, so he leaves. What do the people of Israel do? Problem solved. Hmm, I think I want those slaves back. Does that sound like the story we just got through reading, really, of when they came out of Egypt and Pharaoh goes, I want my slaves back. <clears throat> They're doing exactly like Egypt. They had enslaved them through taxation and monetary ways and then kept them there. It's exactly what Pharaoh and Egypt did. God moves. They become uh, burdened with judgment, repent, let them go, and then change their mind. And God goes, when you did that, you profaned my name. So what happens is <clears throat> Egypt starts coming, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar leave. They go, oh, we want our slaves back. They take them back, which is against what God said. And so then Egypt, now that they realize the problem is gone, Nebuchadnezzar left, they're like, well, there's no need to go to to Judah. So they turn around and go back. During all that, then God goes, well, guess what? Because you took these your fellow Hebrews back and you enslaved them, I'm going to declare liberty, meaning I'm going to call Nebuchadnezzar and have him come back. 
and he's going to kill you. And that is exactly what happened. Um, God has never allowed slavery the way you and I understand slavery. It was his version of a bankruptcy court, but it was also his version to keep the lender and the borrower uh, responsible for their actions. So when you're lending something to somebody, you wouldn't lend it to them beyond their capacity to repay and especially their capacity to work it off in six years. And when you're borrowing, you also realize when you're in that position, you go, I'll have to work it off for six years. And that also means that my, I won't lose my property, but I also won't be able to maintain it for six years. You really didn't want to do that. And then some people would sell themselves into slavery voluntarily to help get themselves out of a situation if it seemed uh, a doable thing. In other words, they say, I will sell my service to you for six years. I will come and become your servant for six years. I need this amount of money. Instead of doing a borrowing thing, I'll just do this, and then this will solve my other problem, whatever that might be. And so some people would sell themselves off into slavery. Uh, but it, it's nothing like what you and I would think about, and they were supposed to be treated properly. Let's move on because there's obviously a lot here to cover. So then we move on to some of these other rules, and I want you to see another interesting thing here. In Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25, it says, When men strive together, in other words, they get into an argument, they're fighting, and they hit a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is where you hear the deal, you know, an eye for an eye, you know, that's said the Lord, an eye for an eye, you know, kind of stuff. Well, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5. Um, and I want you to, uh, before we even get into that, I want you to see something here. When God here is laying this out, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, what is he doing there? He's setting limits on what you can get for the harm done. He's not saying, well, you know, if someone kills your cousin, you got the right to go and kill them for killing your cousin. <laughs> He's basically saying, restitution, yes, must be made because we're sinful human beings. We're self-centered and we're going to sin and we're going to do things we shouldn't do. People are going to fight. People are going to argue. People are going to get hurt. Things will happen. <clears throat> but when restitution is made, it can't be way beyond the crime. The, 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 the payment has to fit the infraction, in other words. Uh, and it obviously needs to be to a degree that people won't want to do it. Uh, but he's, not, he's saying, you know, you know if, you, if you stole your neighbor's dog, you can't kill their cousin. I'm trying to use an exaggeration here, but that's what he's trying to lay out. And that's why he says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, you know, that kind of, because here he's talking about something specific. If, if you strike a pregnant woman, the baby comes out and there's something that happened to the baby. That's, that's the example he's using here. 
Um, does that make sense? Well, Jesus talks about that same thing, and he says something interesting. And here's where, once again, taking Scripture out of context has gotten us in tons of trouble. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 and through 42, it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. If uh, Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. <clears throat> in this section in, he, in Matthew chapter 5, which we talked about last week in this same passage. You'll see here where it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you. There are plenty within the Christian community and outside that will say, right here you can see where Jesus changed the Old Testament. Where he says, You've heard that it was said, da 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 but here's what I'm saying. Meaning I have authority that's higher than the Torah. I would say that's technically true, but he's not going to change it. You want to, I want you to notice here, he says, you have heard that it was said. Throughout this section of Matthew chapter 5, he's going to say that, I think, four times. You've heard that it was said, da-da-da-da, but I say. You've heard that it was said to those of old, da-da-da, but I say. You've heard that it was said this way, da-da-da-da, but I say. What is he saying here? He's dealing with rabbinical rules that they added to the Word of God because of their belief in what's called the oral Torah that ends up becoming the Talmud, which is basically the rabbi's rulings that they actually believe supersede written Scripture. Before you think that's too weird, we Christians have done the same thing. So before you get too critical... We've been doing it for 2,000 years. We don't have time to chase that right now. But that's what they were teaching. And Jesus here is using this statement. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But here's what I'm saying. Don't resist the one who is evil. If someone's... What he's saying here is that you've, you've been being taught by the rabbis that it's okay to exact revenge. That's why in that same section, he's going to say, you've heard that it was said that uh, you should um, hate your enemy. Nowhere in the law of God does it say it's okay to hate your enemy. So why would Jesus say that? It's because that's what the rabbis were teaching from their oral Torah. You tracking with me on that, what I'm, what I'm saying? So this is, again, where when we take the passage, we need to read it and read it in context. And people have constantly been yanking verses out of the Bible, out of context, watch this, to fit their own perspective and their own self-centered desires. That'll get you in trouble every single time. God is a loving, compassionate God, and yet He knows what He's dealing with. So he has to set some boundaries and say, when you get into this kind of trouble, because you're going to get into it, this is how you deal with it. This is how you work through this. And this is how you're to do it my way. We're to be fair for everybody. And you need to put your will in subjection to my will and my word. That's how you're going to stay out of trouble. Because you know what? You're going to try to chase your own desires. It's just what's going to happen. Um, 
Let's jump down into Exodus 22, verses 21 through 24. It says, You shall not wrong the sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. He's trying to remind them where they came from. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. You see that measure for measure again like we talked about last week? I want you to see here this issue that he's a compassionate God. He's going to say it again in this next section. Uh, but he's saying, you're not to mistreat the sojourner that's among you. That's talking about somebody that's not a convert, if you will, to Judaism in this day. Um, they're a sojourner among them. They're a stranger among them. You're not to mistreat them. You're to treat them with dignity and honor and not look down upon them. And he goes, man, and if you mistreat the widow and the fatherless, the fatherless child, you see the compassion God has here for the helpless? And he goes, and they cry out to me? You mistreat them that way? Guess what? I'm going to come and I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to cause your wife to be a widow, and I'm going to cause your children to be fatherless. You better be careful how you treat these people. God's a loving, compassionate God, Amen. He even says this in the next section here in verses 21 through 24. You shall, uh, I'm sorry, in 25 and through 27, he says, And if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Hmm. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else is he supposed to sleep in? And he cries to me, I'll hear because I'm a compassionate God. Do you see that? I mean, he's a loving, compassionate God. You're to be nice, in other words. Be decent. Be honorable. Be upstanding. Treat people with respect. Don't lie, cheat, and steal. And when someone borrows money from you, don't act like a banker. Don't charge them interest. It's ridiculous. He's your, he's your fellow Hebrew. If he needs some help, help him. Your neighbor needs to borrow something you've got. Let him borrow it. Stop worrying about it. Verse 28 through 31, it says in, in chapter 22, You shall not revile God or curse the ruler of your people. And he knows us inside and out, doesn't he? Because when the, he's talking about the judge, when the, the judge among the people, when they make a ruling, live with it. Don't be cursing them because they made a ruling that you didn't like. <laughs> and don't be cursing God because God's putting limits on you. That's what he's saying here, right? In the, if you read this in context, he's, don't, revile, don't revile me because I'm telling you, this, these are your limits. You're not God, and you can't ramrod life over your fellow Hebrew or other people. Be nice. <laughs> and he goes, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your possessions, or, uh, your, your presses. Uh, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen, with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day... 
You shall give it to me. Look at this. You shall be consecrated to me, meaning holy, separated, different. You're not to be living like the rest of the people of the world. You're to live differently, like I'm telling you, like my children, be compassionate, good, honest, upstanding people. Therefore, you shall not eat the flesh of that is anything that is uh, any torn by any beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You're to be different. Um, let's just go on here. And there's something absolutely fascinating here. It says, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Does that sound like D.C. to you? Y'all keeping up with the news and the whole deep state stuff going on and it's crazy and that he went there to drain the swamp and all the rats are mad. Do you ever want, if you want to know what's going on is because a non-politician got in there and he's revealing what's going on and all the rats are mad because they see the ship going down and they're trying to save their sorry hides. That's what's going on. And that's why everybody's so mad and that's why all this is, and so God said, listen, um, you're not supposed to side with the many to do evil, like being in a gang or a secret society to, prov- to promote your evil, suppressing other people. And he also says, and then in a lawsuit or whatever ends up being in law, you are not to side with the many and give a false report, and that's going to pervert justice. Anybody here other than me just assume that all the vile, evil, mean, and nasty, lying snakes in Washington, D.C. get fired and possibly go to jail? Anybody here with me on that? Because that's that's ridiculous, right? And it should happen. As a matter of fact, everything we've looked at so far, you and I, I think anybody with a right mind would say, these are just common sense laws, right? I mean, if we saw people doing these things, we would say, well, that's a good person. And I would like for that good person to be my friend, my companion, because I know I could trust that good person. We would say this is common sense and anybody doing this, no matter what their faith was or whatever, we'd say that's a good person. And so would you and I agree that those are things that you and I should live by? I mean, we should live by that, right? It's amazing because everybody agrees with that, but then we shift gears when we come to these next ones. (laughs) You see, these next ones now, they don't really apply to us, although they do. Uh, we just start, we switch gears because where we go, well, I don't like that. And I've heard for 2,000 years now that doesn't really apply to us. So I'm just going to say that's for those Jews. That's not for me. It's absolutely amazing. Um, in verse 10, it says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. You see why he says this? You you have to read everything. You can't just pick it. You got to read through it. He goes, you're to let your ground and your harvest rest. You're not to plant. You're not to reap. You're to let it sit. Why? So that the land can rest and so that your poor can have something to eat. I'm going to give you everything you need in your six years. 
I'll give you an over and abundance. But then on that seventh year, it's to be a Sabbath rest. It's called the Shemitah year. You're to let the land rest so that the poor among you, they can come and gather whatever grows. And you're not to bellyache about it, and you're not to be out there at night. Get, let them have it. You following that? Uh, and then it says, and, and also so that the beasts of the field are going to have something to eat. God even cares about the wild animals. And he says, you shall do likewise with your vineyard and your olive orchard. Let it rest. Of course, we don't do that in our country. We don't need to. We've got Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, everything else that's bankrupt already. But that's a whole other topic. And this is talking about specifically in the land. Uh, I don't know that. Uh, anyways, let me go on with this next one. It says, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest. And the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So he says, six days you're supposed to work. And on the seventh day, you're supposed to rest. And you're to sanctify this as holy unto me. It's the seventh day Sabbath that we're supposed to rest. Um, and he says, so that your animals can rest. So that even the alien among you can rest. Um, we say that, well, that just doesn't work anymore. <laughs> and that that doesn't apply to us. I'm sitting there going, well, that's crazy. Isn't that weird? God says, I want you to rest. I want you to focus on me and rest so that you can be refreshed. He knows we're stubborn. We're like, well, I don't want to do that. I want to do my own thing. It's like God saying, just rest. <laughs> Focus on me, be refreshed, take a day off and rest. Um, so what the church, what we did was we changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday outside of biblical authority. Go look it up for yourself. Go research it. You can't find it. Nowhere in the Bible was it ever changed to Sunday, ever. The church did it. You can research this yourself. It's not hard to find. And uh, in the church, doc, church documents themselves say, God gave us the authority to change it outside of biblical, a biblical mandate and proved that God gave us the authority to do it. We did it and no one stopped us. That's almost a direct quote. It's not there. They call Sunday the Christian Sabbath. And we don't even treat it like a Sabbath. And it's not the Sabbath. It might be a day of rest, but it's not his Sabbath. It's not his day. It's not the day that he said to rest on. Does all that make sense? Uh, I just think it's amazing that we separate those out and say, well, those don't apply to us. And we've kind of spiritualized them and changed them. <clears throat> to apply to us today, but we're going we're gonna to do God's thing our way. And God goes, no, you're not. 
I want you to notice something else because it's the very next verse. In verse 13, it says, Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be on your lips. (laughs) He's telling them, so you need to pay attention to what I'm saying. I don't want you to look like the other people from the other nations that are serving fallen deities, fallen angelic beings that want to be equal with me when they're not. He says, don't even let their names be on your lips. You're to be different, set apart, consecrated unto me. If you're my children, called by my name, in other words, if my name is your last name, act like you're part of my family. It's just that simple. And his laws and his rules are not hard and burdensome. They're good. They're decent. We're all saying, if we saw people living by these, we'd say, that's a good, honest, decent person. I would want him to be in Washington, D.C. We just said that. He's saying, this, you need to be careful and do these things. And at the same time, be different. And don't even let these other gods' names be on your mouths, on your lips. It's huge. We don't have time this morning. Wow, I am really running out of time. Uh, Exodus 23, verses 14 through 17. He says, three times a year you're to keep a feast to me. Did you see what that just said? You're to keep this feast to me. God commands us to come before him. And worship Him. This is His feast. These are His feasts. But watch this. His command is for us to come and celebrate. Isn't that weird? I want you to come and have a celebration. He commands us to be happy. And have a party. And the sacrifices that we bring, most of that, we eat. It's not like these other gods where you're taking it and laying it before this dumb idol and then you go and then their priests come in at night and steal it and tell you that the the statue ate it. God doesn't do that. He's real open. He's like, you're going to do this. You're going to burn this part as a fragrant, as a smell, if you will, to me. You're going to give this part to the priest. That's their payment because they don't have land. I gave you land. I didn't give them any land or any way to make a living. So this is how they're going to eat and provide for their family. And then all the rest of this, you're going to eat it before me and have a party. That's pretty cool, right? And he says, you're going to do this three times out of the year. I need to get to this other section because it is just, uh, it's too important to to miss today. All of these, uh, the reason we don't understand uh, how all this applies to our life stems from the lie of replacement theology. It's also called, watch this, replacement theology is also called supersessionism. I know that's a big word. It's called supersessionism, which means that the church supersedes or replaces Israel. It's a lie out of the pit of hell and is forcing us to not understand what God is really saying. And this is openly taught 
and that all the covenants and promises of God that he gave to the people of Israel have now been spiritually applied to this new thing called the church. You can find that in Scripture. As a matter of fact, you find the exact opposite. Uh, that's just where it comes from. I want you to see something that is absolutely amazing. In verse uh, 20 and through 24 of chapter 23, it says, Behold, I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Very important. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Did I underline that in your notes? You might even want to put a circle around that or something so it really stands out. Uh, if you, uh, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, that's a very interesting construction in this sentence. It almost, in the original, it almost sounds like he's saying, pay careful attention to everything, pay careful attention to his voice and everything I'm saying. Remember Jesus said, if you've heard me, you've heard the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And God is saying, you need to pay attention to everything he says because my name, my essence is in him. And the New Testament says that in Jesus is the very essence of the Godhead in bodily form. It's absolutely amazing. Anyways, he says, uh, he says, you need to be careful to obey his voice do all, and do all that I say. Then I will be an enemy to your enemies. And I will be an adversary to your adversary. Uh, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. Hmm. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break down their pillars in pieces. The key that I want you to see here is that he says, I'm going to bring you into this area. And these particular peoples, people groups here that he names are the people groups that are still connected to the Nephilim from Genesis chapter 6. Those are the ones that God said you're to obliterate them. These others, they just kind of drive them out. But these are the ones that were to be obliterated. That's connected to the Nephilim that had this tainted DNA. It was Satan's way of trying to thwart God's plan to prove that he's God through humanity and for us to be an actual reflection of the image of God and his imprint on our DNA. I want you to see something else in verse uh, 31 through 33 of this same chapter. He says, And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, uh, and from the wilderness of the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out from before you. Watch this. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare for you. This is why God wanted them to not only obliterate them, tear down their pillars, remove it from them, and not intermarry with them or whatever. He says, because you'll end up serving their gods. And if you serve their gods, his hands will be tied. He'll have to judge. 
because he won't allow his name to be profaned. You following that? And so he says, so if you do this, it will surely be a snare for you. Don't serve their gods. Don't worship me with things that come from these fallen gods. Hmm. Now I want you to see something in this next chapter that is absolutely mind-boggling. In verse 9, in chapter 24, it says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu are Aaron's sons, his two eldest sons. They are nephews of Moses. Moses and Aaron are brothers. Nadab and Abihu are Aaron's sons and Moses' nephews. Important to remember that. And then 70 elders. 70 of the elders of Israel, they go up on this mountain. And they saw the God of Israel. <laughs> there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, meaning God didn't kill them or hurt them. They beheld God and ate and drank. Seventy-four of them go up on the mountain. God appears to them, and they have a meal with God himself. Did you know that was in your Bible? There it is. I want you to remember something. We haven't gotten to the golden calf issue yet. That hasn't happened yet. It's still many chapters away. Your Cecil B. DeMille movie can really mess up your theology. Um, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and these 70 elders, they go up on the mountain and they actually see God they actually see God and Moses having a conversation and they have a meal with him. Um, <laughs> I'm getting a little ahead of myself because we'll get into this when we go through the book of Leviticus, but I've got this here for you because I want you to see something. It's crazy. <clears throat> In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, we're going to see Nadab and Abihu. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his tongue. You see, what I want you to see here, and I, um, wow, I'm not going to have time to get into that other part, I don't think. <clears throat> you can have an experience with God and yet still not have a relationship and respect for God and honor God and his word, and it costs you your life. They're serving God. When this happens, it is the coronation. It is the 
it is day one for the, the consecration of the tabernacle. It's the big day. Nadab and Abihu, dude, man, we're Aaron's kids. We saw God. You might want to pay attention to us. I mean, after all, you know, we're Moses' nephews. We're part of the in crowd. Can you just see it? Not only, and it's not only Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu do this. Later on, it's all the elders and Aaron and everybody. They make the golden calf for crying out loud. Who helped lead that? These 70 elders that were up on the mountain and saw God. Moses up on the mountain for 40 days. They're like, he must be dead. We need to make a calf. <laughs> Aaron goes, yeah, I don't know. We just threw all this gold in there and out popped out this calf. I don't know how that happened. That's what he says. We'll get to that. It's hilarious. You're like, what in the world? Listen, we have to have a personal relationship with God and a desire to honor Him above all things else. You don't add to His Word and you don't subtract from it. Were they supposed to take fire before God? Yes. Were they supposed to take incense? Yes. All we know here is that it says they took unauthorized fire. They took some fire from the wrong place. And when you read the subsequent verses that it talks about drinking, evidently they were probably drunk when they did it. So they were probably drunk and they took the wrong kind of fire. And God says, listen, I don't care who you are. I don't care what your past experience is with me. I don't care what you claim to believe. I will be sanctified among all people. And if you do something against what I said, I will hold you accountable for it. You know how we approach God? Well, hey, I got my Jesus get out of jail card. I can do whatever I want. Are we really any different than Nadab and Abihu when we approach the Word of God and approach our walk with God any different than they? When we keep adding our garbage and our opinions and our stuff and we think God's okay with it? He goes, look, I'm going to be sanctified among all people. Just do what I say. It's really pretty much just that simple. Let me just tell you this one short thing here. We're going to, you're going to have to chase these verses for yourself because it's just so fascinating. Once again, last week we talked about the parallel uh, events and, and on the mountain and stuff going on. There's another one here found in Matthew uh, chapter 20, uh, in, I'm sorry, in Exodus 24, verses 15 through 16. It says, because then Moses goes up on the mountain and uh, the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. There is nothing in your Bible by accident, whether it's the New Testament or the Old Testament. 
It says, on there uh, for six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses from the midst of the crowd. In Matthew 17, 1, you're going to see where, well, it was after six days that Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and his brother uh, up on a mountain by themselves. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. It happened what? After six days. What happens while they're up on the mountain? A cloud comes. God speaks to them out of the cloud. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. That's when he's going to get all the rest of this stuff we're going to find in these other chapters about how to build the tabernacle and, and all the instruments uh, in, in the, the tabernacle itself and the, the altar and the, all of that stuff. We're going to get that in these subsequent verses, these subsequent chapters. And, and it says that, that God spoke to him, and he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. God speaks to him, and he gives him all these truths. And the, uh, the correlation in Matthew chapter 17, uh, it says Jesus is speaking to them. They're up there on the mountain. He's explaining some things to them. And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. The, sh- the, the cloud happens again, just like it happened with Moses. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Huh? Listen to him. They, the same thing was true with the way God was speaking to Moses and for the people to listen to him. And the same thing was said about the angel that went before them. And watch this later on in Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 in verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from your brothers, he's going to be an Israelite, to him you shall listen. Jesus was the prophet spoken of by Moses, and that we are to listen to him. And the event on the Mount of Transfiguration was another picture of, Totally paralleling Moses going up on the mountain and the Shekinah glory crowd happening. And watch this. That's where they saw Moses and Elijah. Isn't that fascinating? And that Jesus is the fulfillment of all this and we're supposed to listen to him and do everything that he says because he's God in the flesh that crossed eternity, spent everything in the eternal bank so that you and I can have a relationship with him and bring glory and honor to our king in heaven. That's awesome. You know what we just need to do? Stop fighting him. It's really just that simple. If we would stop fighting the God that loves us and understand that when he gives us these rules, it's not negative. I'll give you this little deal here. All of God's rules, we look at it as a negative. You mean I can't do this, I can't do that, I've got to do this and I've got to do that and I've got to, you know, I've got to get control of my life and I got to be more disciplined and more organized and get a list. I hate lists. Sonia will tell you, and I'm horrible with lists. Anybody here, can anybody here relate? Or am I all by myself? I got one, I got two, I got three. Any, there's three of us, four of us. I'm just not real good with lists. I'm just, I don't, it's just my brain doesn't function or something. I don't know. I'm just not good with it. But we didn't, you know, so we need to get more organized. We need to get our, our, our self-will under control. I need to be more disciplined. I need to do all these things. And if I do all these things, well, then maybe I'm going to please God. And that's hard. 
And it's a negative backward way of looking at it. God goes, here are my rules and they're real simple. And when you do these things, the way I say, the way I'm laying out for you, you're going to be proclaiming that I really am here and that I'm God. Oh, and that when you do that, you'll be living the abundant life that Yeshua said he came to give you. And you're going to be punching the devil in the face. And all these other demons, you're going to be giving them a black eye. And you're going to be making a proclamation that God is God, that he is coming back, and that he's your savior, and he's, his name is on you and in you. Do you see the difference? Now it's a positive. It's like, okay, so if I do this, it's something positive, and it's got nothing to do with me beating my will down and becoming better disciplined. It becomes easier to do, in other words. You see what I'm saying? And so then when that happens and you start doing that, then watch this. Sin and temptation and struggle and strife starts to disappear. And you start finding yourself wanting to do more and more of what God says because it's honoring Him and glorifying Him and you find yourself loving Him more and wanting to do more and then the blessings come. We have a tendency to want to do it to get the blessings. Then you go into this weird mind game of figuring out if the blessings are worth the pain of getting it done. Right? It's kind of like working out and eating healthy. And you go, I, we already start giggling, right? Uh, is the pain of doing all that going to be worth it? Well, that's why that's the wrong perspective. Instead of saying, I'm doing this to be healthy. And then I'll feel better. And I'll stop feeling bad because I feel bad when I eat the junk. And I have to keep feeding more junk in there to keep it going. You can't figure out. I need a, you know, I need to change the oil. You know, I need to, I need to retool this whole thing. And then it makes more sense. Instead of just you keep fighting it from the wrong direction. We're fighting all this stuff from the wrong direction. When we understand the why, then it all makes more sense. And then it becomes something positive, which makes it more easier to do and a joy to do. And then the blessings do come. And then you find yourself loving God more and you want to do it more. And then you find out, wow, I'm getting along better with my wife. I'm getting along better with my husband. I'm getting along better with my boss. I'm getting along better with my employees. I'm getting along better with my neighbor, even though he's still a jerk. But your perspective is all different. And then you realize, I'm not, fighting against, I'm not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, and every lofty thing lifted up against the knowledge of God. And I'm making a proclamation every time I do these things, even in the privacy of my own home, when nobody's seeing me, I'm punching these demons right in the face. That's cool. Because did you notice? That's why I highlighted it in your passages. He says, when you did this and when you went back on your promise to me, you profaned my name. Did you see that? He's not just judging them just because they broke his law. Are the other people that aren't called by his name breaking his laws every day? 
But is he bringing out judgment on them because they're breaking those laws? They're not his people. He's like, you want to do that? Wear yourself out. But if you're going to be called by my name, I want you to live like this, and then I'll bless you. And then if you call yourself by my name and make these promises, but then go against it, I'm going to have to take you behind a woodshed. You have to get a spanking. So I can get your attention and say, hello, don't do that. Because when you do that, you're profaning my name. You're in my family. This is how we do this. You see the difference? God loves you so much, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all this. And when he came, he didn't do away with it. He shed the proper light on it so we'd know what to do. And we made it so confusing, we don't know which way's up or down. We, we can't even count to three. We tell everybody with a straight face, Jesus died on Friday, rose on Sunday. That's three days. Graded algebra and can't even add. <laughs> I can tell you how that works. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not. It's because we don't understand what the Word of God even says. And we don't read it. And then we distort it. And then we look like, what's this? Idiots. The lost world out there goes, really? He died on Friday, rose on Sunday, three days. And that's what you want me to believe, and you want me to be a good little Christian. Okay, how's that working out for you? You see why they don't even want to buy into what we're saying? Because what we're saying doesn't even add up. Uh, it does according to His Word when you read it in context. You go, oh, okay, well, that's what, that's, that's, that's what it says. Oh, okay, well, yeah. He died on Wednesday afternoon. Thursday was the Sabbath, the first day of uh, unleavened bread. Friday wasn't a Sabbath. That's the day they were buying the spices and fixing it. Then they rested on the weekly Sabbath, as was their custom. And then they went on the first day of the week when he was raised, which was first fruits. It's always on a Sunday within that week of unleavened bread. Therefore, duh, Jesus himself said, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. This is the only sign I'm going to give you. And we messed it up. Because we can't count to three. <laughs> well, folks, this is why adding to God's word and taking away from it will mess us up. And our own doctrine and our own teachings is keeping people out of the kingdom. We need to learn to read the Bible for what it says and live by it. Punch the devil in the face and bring people into the kingdom and show them God loves you and he wants to show you how to live a peaceful, loving, and abundant life. He wants to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. And all of it applies to our lives where we can, where it's applicable, where it's appropriate today. We aren't living in the land, all that other stuff. We don't have time today. But this is a really cool passage because you can see the parallels. You can see how Jesus is mirroring these things and then saying, I didn't come to do away with it. God is the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. And that is also our guarantee that when he comes back, he's going to take us to be with him because even if we change, he doesn't. Hallelujah. Amen. I mean, that's some good news because any can, is anybody here... Fickle like me. I mean, I can like something today and hate it tomorrow. I can be a genius today and a moron the next day. 
well, maybe not a genius, but not an idiot, right? Uh, we change. God doesn't. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He loves you. And He's provided a way for you to be safely home and to be with Him for all of eternity. That is good news. And that when the world comes unraveled, we can be right under the shadow and the shelter of His wing. It'll be okay no matter how things turn out here. It'll be okay.